Well, this morning as we continue in Mark chapter 10, we have two more weeks in Mark 10 before we're going to take a break from this series. Um, If you have been reading ahead, you know the beginning of Mark 11 is the uh, triumphal entry, the kind of beginning of Passover week. So from Mark 11 all the way to the end, uh, the whole gospel account in that section is just one week in real time. Uh, So this last couple weeks is kind of the the final couple weeks that really sums up Jesus' teaching ministry in his three years, having these 12 disciples follow him around. And and we're going to come to a verse in our passage this morning. It's the final verse in our passage that is not only a major landmark in the gospel of Mark, but I think you can make the case that this verse, Mark 10, 45, is a landmark in the entire Bible. Um, So so there's a a technique in film and movies where you occasionally start a movie, you go to the movie theater, you turn it on, Netflix, whatever, and, and the movie starts with the final scene. And you have no idea what's going on. You just see characters and action. It's usually very dramatic. And you're just like, what is happening? And then screen goes dark. And then it starts the beginning of the movie. It's a very popular technique. And then you kind of watch the rest of this movie knowing that that final scene is going to come back. What, 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 that's kind of lodged in your mind that this whole plot's going to lead up to that point. So a lot of all-time great movies have started that way. Fight Club, um, Saving Private Ryan, Forrest Gump, uh, Pulp Fiction, um, by the way, not endorsements of these movies at all, all right? Don't go home and necessarily watch them. Kids, don't go home and say, hey, Pastor Aaron said we got to watch Pulp Fiction, all right? I will deny that, and I'll have AJ scrub this from the podcast, all right? If it's not on the podcast, it didn't happen, but um, you have these really kind of all-time known movies that, that start with this technique. We're going to start with the ending, and then we're going to go. So I want to start with Mark 10.45 this morning because it will help shape and inform everything else on the screen or in your Bibles, this is what Jesus says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man. We, we talked a little bit about that term. We'll talk a little bit more later in the sermon, kind of all that goes into that. This person that everybody in the Jewish nation has been looking forward towards. All of history has looked forward to this Son of Man, the greatest man ever to be on earth. The epic, cosmic Messiah, climax of the Bible, have, has pointed towards him, and he's arrived, and he's a servant. This, in many ways, is the climax of the entire Christian story. And, and here's the thing. Once you get this, once you get Mark 10.45, not just read it, not just comprehend it, but once this hits like your soul and you wrap your arms around it, it changes everything. This verse, when fully grasped, it doesn't just inform what we believe. It shapes how we live. I've said that often about whatever you say you believe or you don't believe, I I want to see how it makes you live. How does what you believe shape how you live? I don't really care how you believe if it doesn't really inform how you live. And in the Christian life, servanthood is this focus, this this kind of epicenter, primary focus day to day. If we're going to live out this life faithfully, this is what Jesus has been doing all summer. We've been looking at what's it look like to follow me. And here we get Mark 10.45, kind of the core of it all, servanthood. The Son of Man, you see, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the scene I want us lodged in our minds as we go through our passage this morning. So let's get going. We're going to pick it up in verse 32. 
and start going from 32 to 35. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who were followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, happen- what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." So all these scenes we're going to get leading up to that final one. First is the road. This is the third and final time in Mark's gospel that Jesus plainly foretells of his death and resurrection. And they're going up to Jerusalem. It was the capital city of Israel, a city that was literally on a hill. It was a higher elevation than all the regions around it. So regardless of what direction people were coming from, they're saying, we're going up to Jerusalem. We know Jesus and his disciples have been on this road coming from uh, first Caesarea Philippi down through Capernaum. So they're coming from the north, going up to Jerusalem, and they're not alone. Again, we'll find out in chapter 11, they're headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, and that was a pilgrimage that approximately one million Jews made every single year. So traffic is heavy, the road is packed, and Mark just tells us Jesus is walking ahead this, this image of Jesus is leading the pack. And then he tells us something that's kind of interesting, a little confusing. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And he never tells us why. He never tells us why they were amazed at the fact that Jesus was leading the way. They never tell us why um, others were following and were afraid of this sight. It's good because you know, the, the crowds are also heading towards Jerusalem, but also these, it could just be them that they're afraid because they're not really understanding this Jesus character. They just see all these crowds around them. It could be the 12 disciples have been with Jesus his entire ministry, and they know that, man, they're going to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the belly of the beast of Jesus' enemies. They are most significant, most powerful, the scribes and the chief priests in Jerusalem. They're going to the capital. And yet, Jesus is still the one that is leading the pack. I think this is a good word picture that Mark provides us, this this idea that something can be amazing and it can be terrifying at the same time. Because when you think about it, both of those emotions are present when you are in the presence of grandeur. When, when, when you're in front of something that's so amazing, you, you, you are amazed and you're also a little terrified. So a couple examples, I think God's creation really shows us this in a lot of ways. I always think of the time Rochelle and I went to the Grand Canyon. Many of you have been there. Five million people go a year, pay $30 to get entry into the park to go look at the gigantic hole in the ground. That's the Grand Canyon. You go and you just sit there and you stare. And it's amazing. I loved it. And five million of my closest friends love it too every single year. And what do you do? You walk to the edge and you feel grander. It's amazing. And you know what else it also is? terrifying. Like the idea that you can walk to the edge of something and go, if I just go one step further, I'm dead. Lights out. That's kind of a strange moment to be in. Like one step, just one step, and everything goes from just amazing to then just it's all over. And, and we love it. There's something innate in mankind. We like to feel small. We don't even like to admit it, but we'll pay money to go fly to a place to go look at a hole in the wall, hole in the ground. Because we like feeling small. We like grander. All right, we, you know, where we are in our part of the country, talk about annual pilgrimage down to the Jersey Shore, 
every summer, like where beach you going to, what exit you at, and what's so great about the Jersey Shore? Amongst other things, the ocean. You, you can go out and you, and you have access to the ocean. You know what's amazing? The ocean. You know what the ocean also is? Terrifying. It's both those things together, and we understand grandeur. We understand being confronted with this. We're just drawn to it. And so Mark doesn't give us detail. He doesn't love detail in a lot of ways. We've seen that over and over again. But he just says, yeah, Jesus was walking ahead, and people were amazed, and people were terrified, because that's what happens when you see something that is absolutely majestic. And this is the context for the third and most detailed foretelling of what will happen to him. The first time he includes a lot of details that weren't in the first two. It's the first time he says, this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And then the Son of Man, and again, we talked about this, the Son of Man in, in Daniel and different Old Testament prophecies, always looking ahead towards this man that was going to come, that was going to have all dominion, all power, everything was going to serve him. He was coming, and he says, the Son of Man is going to the capital. So far, so good. The Messiah is going to the most central part of the capital. This is what the disciples were expecting, but then it takes a dark turn. He says he's going to die, but he's actually going to suffer first. It's the first time he tells us it's going to happen by both the hands of the Jews and the Romans. Did you catch that? He says this is not just the chief priest that's going to hand me over. It's going to be now in concert with the Gentiles, with the Roman rule. But then he gets really, really specific. He goes, I'm going to be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. And then three days later, he'll rise. Very specific, very intentional. For those Jews who were listening very closely, they would see um, references and allusions back to passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 50, and others that talked about this suffering Messiah. And this foretelling, along with the first two, we know it's just not really sinking in for the disciples. Like they're hearing it, but they're not getting it. They're hearing it, but they're not really hearing it. And I think uh, part of the reason why Jesus says this to him, to them, is to make it abundantly clear that he is freely choosing this. So later, when the disciples, after the death, after the resurrection, they're going to look back on these moments, and all of a sudden they're going to be putting the pieces together, remembering the things that he was saying, reflecting on this road to Jerusalem. And when they think back, there's going to be no thought to the fact that, man, Jesus went and got duped in Jerusalem. Jesus thought he was going to get one thing, but then something else happened. There was a bait and switch. He was tricked by those who killed him. There is no room for that because Jesus is making it abundantly clear right now. I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to me. And by the way, I'm leading the pack. What a moment on the road. Our Savior was not tricked. And he was not defeated. The Son of Man chose this freely. And he's leading the way. So let's keep going. Back to our passage. Let's look at verses 35 to 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom God has, whom, for whom it has been prepared. We move from the road to the request. The road to the request. Mark intentionally places this request directly after Jesus just told them he's about to go get flogged and spit on and then killed. And we don't know if this has exactly happened in the order that it did, but Mark is trying to convey to us the disciples, they're not getting it. They're struggling to grasp what's going to happen there. We, we talked about last week how the disciples were really just consumed by status Everything was about status. That really was just a function of the whole Roman Empire, what kind of status you were, what, where they're positioned in relation to others. We talked about how that's, that wasn't just a first century issue, right? That's an every century issue. That's a sin issue that we all deal with, status. How we compare, not just in our own standards, but how we compare to others and other people's eyes. And so James and John, with this just on their mind, they approach Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's a bold statement. It's an interesting way to go about it. Consider going to somebody who's an authority in your life, going to your boss, going to your parent, going to a teacher, a professor, and just saying, hey, I want you to do whatever I'm about to ask you. I think in our day, we, we, we found a better way to do that. We just go, hey, could you do me a favor? Never actually saying what the favor is. We want, we want to get that commitment before, right? I never know how to answer that question. Like, uh, maybe? It kind of depends. James and John seem to come boldly, but we know that it's not the whole story. You know, Matthew's gospel adds a little bit of a wrinkle here, that James and John were not alone, their mother is the one who came up to Jesus with them behind them and initiated the conversation because nothing is more manly or bold than having your mom be the one to go ask a really hard question. Mom, can you? We, and so you had this picture of a bold mom face to face with Jesus, James and John just heads down, really nervous about what's about to happen. Sure, Jesus could have just ripped that apart, but, but he's compassionate. He just goes, all right, what do you want? What do you want? And it's revealed what they want is the premier locations on the throne in Jesus' kingdom, one on the right, one on the left. We want the best seat in the house. We want to be greatest in the kingdom. Status consumes them. And ultimately, it flows from a misunderstanding of Jesus' kingdom. What they were expecting, what all the Jews were expecting, was that the Son of Man was going to come and take over Israel. He was going to instate an earthly kingdom. He was going to rule and reign over this nation and finally be the one to release them from this oppressive Roman rule that's now been in place for a few hundred years. Not only do they misunderstand that, but they misunderstand what Jesus has been telling them all along what it means to be his disciple, to be a servant, to go low. They're not looking to go low. It's not cool to go low. Jesus, we want the top spot. You're on the throne. We want to be on the right, and we want to be on the left. 
Jesus looking at them. I almost see, remember last week he looked at the rich young ruler. He said he looked at him and he loved him. So misguided. Just didn't understand. And yet he loved them with this compassion. And again, does not rebuke them outright. He just says, brothers, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I need to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I need to undergo? You know what's the irony in all this? That's my favorite part about Mark, is his, his love for irony and showing that in his gospel. That they said, in your glory, we won't be on your right and on your left. You know what the irony is? You know where Jesus is at this highest moment of glory? Is on the cross. And in that moment, there will be somebody on the right. And there will be somebody on the left. And nobody is going to be jealous of those two men. James and John hear this response, blinded to it all, and they go, yep, we can handle it. Let's go, sign us up, cup and baptism, sure. Drinking the cup was a familiar picture in Scripture, but but never one that was ever positive. Drinking the cup is always a picture in the Bible of God's wrath and judgment uh, there are several examples. Let me just give you two quick ones up on the screen where, where this comes up in the Old Testament. First is Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Next, Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Some difficult verses. Those are just two. We could have done more. And Jesus understands this is the will for his life. It's the will of the Father for him. And he's not being tricked into it even by his Father. Again, this is one stunningly he chooses freely. He's choosing to go to Jerusalem to, to, to take on the wrath of God freely. And, and the worst pain that Jesus will feel, he's not, when he was in the garden and he was sweating blood, what did he say? Father, take this cup from me. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. That song, Lay Me Down This Morning, what a beautiful picture of that. Just lay me down. I'm, I'm yours, your will for my life, not my will. That, that's what Jesus modeled for us above all else. And so the, the agony, why he was sweating blood in the garden, it wasn't because he was afraid of the nails that are going to be in his hands. It wasn't, it wasn't fearing the nail that would be in his feet or the spear that would come in his side or the whippings or the floggings or the crown of thorns. The agony that he faced, that he, the weight that he struggled with was a spiritual agony. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath towards sin. And then baptism, another picture for being totally immersed, totally overwhelmed by this path that he is on. Um, that, again, we won't read them, but recalls Genesis 6, Psalm 69, and others. And Jesus is saying, brothers, I came for that. For that cup and that baptism, and nobody else can do it. Nobody else can do what I've been called to do. Nobody else can handle it. Brothers, you don't know what you're asking. But then Jesus says something that is kind of cryptic. 
Again, something that they would not understand in the moment, totally flies over their heads, but as they kind of uh, look back at this time in the future, then they would start to put the pieces together. He says, now listen, you will drink the cup, and you will be baptized. It won't be the same as me. Only I can do what the Father has sent me to do, but it's the same way of telling him, telling the disciples what he's told them in the past. When he told them back in chapter 8, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. That's an, that's an agonizing word picture. Take up your symbol of death and follow me. And even though only he would go to the cross, he used that language to describe what it's like to be his disciple, that it comes with suffering. To follow Christ is to walk the pathway of suffering to glory. James, the one who is standing right there, he would be the first apostle to be martyred. We read that in Acts chapter 12. He'd be killed by King Herod because of his association with this new upstart movement called the church. This thing called the church, it keeps spreading, and I don't know why. We killed its leader. Why is it spreading? And so they try to kill its leaders even below that, and James was the first one. And then his brother John, who's standing right next to him, church history tells us he was the only apostle who wasn't martyred of the twelve. But he received several beatings that we read about in the book of Acts. And then church history tells us they tried to burn him alive and he didn't die. So they freaked him out and they just exiled him to the island of Patmos where he would go on to write the book of Revelation in his older age. So he says, brothers, you will experience suffering and it will be for my sake, but it won't be at the level that I will. And I just think we need to pause there. I, th- I don't think we can so quickly just gloss over what he just said to them. Because you know what we don't like verses like in America? That one. You're not going to see that on too many coffee cups and t-shirts this week. And on bumper stickers that you will drink the cup and you will be baptized. That wouldn't get a lot of, lot of uh, pull in our Christian culture. But here's a really important point in our faith. That Jesus frees us, hear me, Jesus frees us to share in his sufferings and live risk-filled lives for the gospel. Jesus became one of us so that we might become more like him, where taking up your cross is chosen freely. You're not tricked into this, you're not obligated, this is not punishment, this is with joy set before you because of the power of Christ inside of you. You ever wonder, what, what, what was it? What was it that went from James and John here jockeying for position at their own pride, wanting to be the best, wanting to be at his right and his left, to then, maybe a few months later, living uh, lives of servanthood that went from becoming uh, wanting the best to now be willing to giving up their own lives for the sake of the gospel? How could somebody change that fast? That's a crazy transformation, isn't it? It's the power of Christ inside of them, sealed by the Holy Spirit that would dwell within them when Jesus left and sent him, a Holy Spirit that transforms them into courageous men from cowardly men who are now willing to risk it all. We serve because he served, and we can deny our comfort because he denied his 
It's what Jesus said last week to his disciples after the rich young ruler. He said, listen, you guys have left mothers and brothers and sisters and lands and, and have sacrificed it all, and you will, be, you will receive 100-fold your reward. It's so worth it. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be so worth it, and it won't even be close. The most joy-filled life you could ever have is following Christ, not the most comfortable It's important for us to recognize that, that the most comfortable life is not necessarily the most joy-filled life. So one application before even we just move on in the sermon, like ask yourself, what right now, in this season of life, right now, what is God calling you to do that's uncomfortable? That, That you can try and kind of stuff out, but what is it in your life that God is calling you to that you know makes you uncomfortable? It's in that place, church where you will find the most joy. That place where you need to step out. That place where you need to trust him to sustain you. It's in that place of discomfort where you'll see it's all worth it. So for everybody, that's different. As we head into the fall, I mean, even just thinking the context of this church and this ministry, maybe it's like going to a grace group meeting for the first time. It's always been an uncomfortable notion to you, always been denied. Maybe that's where God is calling you to. Maybe it's leading a grace group. Maybe it's teaching downstairs in kids' worship. And, and of course, it's not just in the context of this church. Maybe outside the church, it's, it's inviting your neighbor over for dinner for the first time, even though you've lived there for 10 years. Maybe it's uh, serving down at Star of Hope in Patterson. Maybe it's beginning to speak out on behalf of the marginalized in our culture. Maybe it's stepping into a space, using your platform to entice and revitalize social systemic change. What makes you uncomfortable when it comes to living a life that follows the pathway of Christ? It's right there where you'll see the power of Christ inside of you like you never have before. So let's keep going. Let's read the rest of this passage where we're finally going to see this verse 45 come back into sight. Pick it up at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We saw the road. We saw the request. Now the ransom. Other disciples catch wind of this conversation that James and John and their mom are having with Jesus, and they're furious. They're so angry with them, and yet I don't think they're upset that they asked this question. You know why I think they're upset? Because they beat them to it. Because they wanted to be the ones to be on the right and the left. Do you remember back in chapter 9, Jesus kind of walked upon his disciples, and they were having an argument? Do you remember what they were arguing about? Who amongst them is the greatest? What an awesome just argument to have as Jesus' disciples. Who amongst us is the greatest of all? And Jesus is just saying, no, you don't get it. And yet, and yet they see James and John and now they're furious because now they're going to be the ones to the right and left. Now I wanted to be there. 
And so it's in this space where they are consumed with status, square in the middle of a Roman Empire that is built upon status, where Jesus steps in and gives them the most countercultural mandate he will ever give them, and then he will give them the way they can do it. What was the mandate? Think about it. They're on this road heading towards Jerusalem. He says, fellas, look around. Look around at this world. You know how this world works, how the Gentiles, the Romans, lord it over people, that they lead by exercising dominant authority, patriarchal, top-down ethics, and then says, but it shall not be so among you. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be a slave to all. You see, the world, they operate in this top-down authoritarian ethic, but it shall not be so among you. You need to operate with a bottom-up servanthood ethic. And then he says, for, so now he's about to give you the reason. So he says that really bold statement, and then for, that word for is really important. It's like, because, he's now going to give them the grounds through which they can carry this out. For, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says why he came. He came to serve. And again, and they're not fully grasping it, but they will. They will. The Son of Man, the greatest man ever to walk to earth, came to serve. He's not only our example but he's the source of power to make it happen. One that we should all pay attention to. You want to be a leader? You want to be a good leader? A truly great leader? You better be the first servant. This is kind of, you had to distill, again, this whole section of discipleship from chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 in this gospel. It's really, if you had to distill it down into one phrase, the great ones are servants. A great disciple is one who serves, serves God serves others. And then the final phrase of verse 45, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples why he came, quote, to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't think it's overdramatic to say that that one phrase is what separates Christianity from every other religion and worldview in the world. Uh, today, when we think of the word ransom, what, what do you think about? When, when you think ransom, you generally associate it with a kidnapping, right? Somebody's kidnapped, and a payment has to be made to a kidnapper to the release of the victim. I think uh, this is the way the word has really come into our focus, maybe partly due to the 1996 movie, Mel Gibson, Ransom, really underrated, in my opinion. A um, lot of movie references here today. Um, but in the ancient world, ransom was not really thought about that way. Ransom was more how we think of the word of bail, releasing a prisoner, you made a payment to release a prisoner, money that bailed them out of prison. And Jesus says in this context, a payment must be made for many. So here's a question for you. I need you to think about this with me. Who got the ransom? Who's the ransom paid to? Let me tell you who it was not paid to. It was not paid to Satan. No hint in Scripture is ever that the, ca- is that the case. Satan received one thing at the cross, and it was not a payment. It was defeat and ruin. 
There was no payment to him. In fact, Satan is never mentioned in the book of Mark after chapter 8 when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You never see his name again the rest of the entire gospel. The ransom was paid to the Father. Jesus went to the cross willingly, freely chosen to be a sacrifice, to be the cosmic payment by taking the cup, the wrath of God, so it would secure the freedom of sinners who deserved the wrath of God. Sinners who rebelled against him, who were rightly deserving of God's judgment. Me. My sin. And you. Your sin. That was what had to be paid. And it wasn't to Satan to let you go. It was to the Father. And you see, this is where the gospel explodes in our hearts. This is where it shapes our lives when we come to find out, come to grasp that Jesus didn't come to just pay a ransom. Jesus came to be the ransom. It's by his death and resurrection that the payment can be made in full and forgiveness offered to those who put their faith in him. And in this way, Jesus is your substitute in that he received the penalty for your sin, and in doing so, he atoned for your sin by his blood, and he redeemed you from the slavery of sin and freed you into new life in Christ. This is the truth behind the gospel. The, the phrase behind it is, is penal, is in penalty, penal substitutionary atonement. It's a vital aspect of the gospel. You don't have a gospel without it. If you pay attention to kind of modern theological debates and history really starting in the Enlightenment, I'm not saying you even should or need to, but you would know that that doctrine, substitutionary atonement, is consistently under attack. And you know why? There's a modern mindset that's becoming, that really has become a Western modern mindset that says, if God is really a loving God, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Why can't he just do that? If he truly is God and all-powerful, why can't he just say, all right, we're good? Why did his own son have to suffer? That, that just went really dark. That's like this cosmic child abuse. Like, was that really necessary? That's just twisted. And the reason why it's so under attack, not only in the world, but in our churches, is because it's a downplaying of two things at the same time. It downplays the seriousness of sin, and then it downplays the magnitude of God's true love. It's at the cross where the Father and the Son and the Spirit were completely unified. Where we see in all of its beautifully gruesome glory, the justice of God against sin and the love of God for sinners put on display. J.I. Packer, big theologian, middle of the 20th century, says this, Indeed, one may speak of divine wrath as a function of divine love. For God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. It is because God passionately loves purity and peace and perfection that he reacts angrily towards anything or anyone who defile them. And you know what? Every religion can probably understand at some point a God of wrath. A God that hands out punishment. I think everyone can understand that. We can all think of people in our lives and across history that deserve punishment. They've done terrible things. They need to be punished. That's justice. But it's only in Christianity 
where God becomes man and takes the punishment himself because of his great love for you. Substitutionary atonement. Whether or not you remember that phrase doesn't matter. The truth behind it is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. That satisfaction of your sin came through substitution of another and your victory was accomplished on the cross. Jesus says, this is why I came. To create a new people. One that isn't united by ethnic borders or by cultural factors, but one that is united in faith. Those who have their sin atoned for are those who place their faith in him. And this truth, it's not just the center of what it means to become a Christian. It remains the center of what it means to be a Christian as you follow him all of your days. This is what I meant when I said at the beginning, when this gets into your soul, when Mark 10.45 gets into your soul, it changes everything. How could it not? It finds its way into every nook and cranny of your life. It shapes your thoughts, your desires, your words, your actions to everybody you see, the way you treat them. Kingdom ethics are bottom up. Do you want to be great? And you must be a servant. And the more mature you get in the faith, the most mature men and women in this church are the ones who this truth of a servanthood ethic becomes visibly evident in their life to everybody around them. The immature Christian will never grasp this. But if you're going to mature, you need to mature in your path of becoming more like Christ and being a servant is going to be at the center. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray.